Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Grant Gerlach sitting in for Ben Kiefer. In the first six weeks of this year's legislative session, lawmakers introduced literally hundreds of bills. But last week, we reached a cutoff point that decides which bills are moving forward and which are placed back on the shelf. On today's show, we're having a reporter's roundtable to fill you in on which bills survived and which bills did not survive the legislative funnel. And there's a lot to talk about major legislation around special education, how the state delivers mental health and substance abuse services, immigration, taxes, the rights of transgender Iowans. We have a lot to get to. I'll welcome the rest of our roundtable shortly. But first, Katerina Sestark covers state government for IPR News. Katerina, can you give us a, a quick reminder of how the funnel works? And if a bill does not make it through the funnel, is it gone for good? Sure. For this uh, first funnel week of the legislative session, a bill just has to get through a committee in one chamber to stay alive. Um, And it's a way to just narrow down the number of bills. As you mentioned, hundreds of bills are filed. Um, So just to narrow down what bills are in play as the session continues on. Um, And so that's what we saw last week when there was just a flurry of committee activity where people were trying to get their priorities through those committees. And if it isn't through the funnel, is it is that it? Not necessarily. Um, There's a lot of ways that lawmakers, especially the majority party, can bring things back if they really want to. So we kind of always have to have an eye out for that. Always, always a caveat. If you're wondering what happened to a piece of legislation or have a comment on the work of lawmakers so far, email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Now let's bring in the rest of our roundtable. Stephen Gruber-Miller covers the legislature and politics for the Des Moines Register. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Grant. And Kathy Obradovich is joining us. She's the editor of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Thanks for being here, Kathy. Thanks for having me, Grant. Well, let's start with uh, area education agencies. In her Condition of the State address, Governor Kim Reynolds revealed plans to overhaul special education in Iowa. But since then, the plans for how to do that have gone through a few rounds of revisions. So, Stephen, where do things stand now that we're through the funnel? Yeah, as you mentioned, there have been several major changes to the proposal that Governor Reynolds unveiled in January. So let me see if I can keep things straight here. The House and Senate each have their own bills that work in different ways to overhaul the AEAs. Uh, The House bill would keep the AEAs as the only provider of special education services for K-12 students and and younger children. But in 2025 and 2026, schools would be able to contract with other providers for media services or general education services that they currently get from the AEAs. Um, The House plan continues sending special education money from the federal government straight to the AEAs, like happens now. But the state money and property tax dollars that currently go to AEAs would go to school districts who would then decide how to spend those. The Senate bill sends 90% of federal uh, special or 90% of special education funding to individual school districts and only 10% to the AEAs and a key difference with the house proposal uh, is that the senate bill does not require schools to continue using AEAs for special education or media or general education services so they could decide to go elsewhere under that bill and so what the, what the governor had been talking about was her concerns about whether students with IEPs are keeping up in school um, and Kathy, have you been following this? 
How do yes. lawmakers in the House and Senate say that they're addressing that part of her concerns? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, they are taking uh, some of that with a grain of salt, uh, given really an outpouring of support for AEAs from parents of students with special education. Um, And, you know, I think that um, in particular, the the House is sensitive to that, concerns about how uh, people in rural areas will be affected um, by services Um, And I I think it's interesting to mention that a lot of this uh, legislation that the governor proposed is based on a consultant's report um, that was, uh, you know, really uh, released after the discussion began. Um, And I think there's a lot of concerns about the the, uh, conclusions raised by that consultant, including, you know, really are Iowa special ed students behind um, other states and, you know, what goes into how much the state is spending on special education. So I think that some of the some of that discussion is now filtering into the mix as well. I thought it was interesting to hear lawmakers say things along the lines of, well, we didn't know exactly what the governor was going to introduce either until it was introduced. And especially in the House, they talked about wanting to slow down the conversation and kind of reset things, hear from superintendents, hear from parents hear from teachers, hear from people within the AEAs about things that they would want to fix and and how they would address that. One part of the House plan that I think is interesting, Stephen, is this task force that it would set up to look more, look uh, to take a closer look at some of the issues that even the governor had raised. How would that work? Yeah, that's right. So the House bill does have a task force where uh, it would be really led by lawmakers. There'd be a certain number of, of lawmakers on that task force, and they would have to look I think by the end of the year, um, at a number of, of issues and, and just sort of services that the AEAs offer. Um, the Democrats are sort of saying, well, if you're going to do this study, why don't we wait to make any changes until we get the results of that? But I think that um, for the Republicans, it's a way, for the House Republicans, it's a way that they could be more involved in kind of looking at and spearheading future changes for the AEAs. But I think what you were just saying is is exactly right. A lot of Republicans in the legislature were maybe surprised by the exact details of the proposal that the governor released. And I also think that uh, it's probably important to say that while we laid out the House and Senate plans, the final version of, of whatever passes, if anything does pass, will probably look not exactly like either one of those. Yeah. I mean, isn't that right, Kathy? Now we have this House bill and a Senate bill, and there's quite a bit of space in between them, right? Yeah, and ultimately, this is the governor's proposal, right? She wields a lot of power, as we know, over uh, what ultimately is going to come out of the legislature. Um, you know, we may recall with the um, private school um, scholarships uh, over the last couple of years mm-hmm. that she played hardball. I mean, she got uh, half a dozen lawmakers, um, uh, she put up primary help, uh, support primary opponents against them when they didn't support her, her proposal. Um, you know, I, I think that lawmakers are going to be more cognizant and careful about, you know, going through this and, and making sure that they bring the governor along, uh, with whatever it is they end up doing. So I agree with Steven. I don't think I don't think that the, what they end up doing is going to look exactly like either bill. Yeah, and those uh, primary challenges were after two rounds of trying to get some form of school choice through and and failing. 
uh, first year of trying to do this overhaul of AEAs, and we'll keep watching to see whether they can come to a unified proposal or not. Let's move to a bill in the House, uh, Kathy, that sets out some guidelines for school districts that choose to allow teachers to carry guns in school. Um, What would this bill do, and how does the shooting in Perry last month factor into the discussion here about arming teachers? Yeah, I mean, so this is a this is sort of um, trying to mop up legislation uh, that uh, went through previously. Teachers are allowed right now to arm their school employees. Uh, you know, school boards can choose that um, right now. Um, but there and there are several up in Northwest Iowa that tried it or put um, policies in place. Spirit Lake was one. And um, they ended up having to back off those policies because their insurance carrier wouldn't continue to cover them for liability if they went ahead and armed teachers. So the, the legislation that's going forward now is um, you know, looking at trying to address insurers' concerns. So they put a permit process in place for uh, any employee who would be carrying a weapon on school grounds during school hours um, that they would... Um, uh, who's not a you know a certified law enforcement officer who would already be you know certified, but um, you know there there would be uh, fairly significant training requirements, um, uh, and they would actually indemnify school districts for um, the use of force in a workplace, reasonable use of force in a workplace. So all of it, there's there's no mention of insurance really, other than that in the bill, but but they're they're essentially just trying to to bring insurers back to the table. Um, it, this is completely um, up to school districts whether they would want um, their employees to be armed, um, and and uh, then there would also be some money available from the state um, for school districts that wanted to hire um, school resource officers or private security um, for for their schools as well. So so they're trying to facilitate this. They're not forcing districts to do it. And and the of course the Perry. Um, the mass shooting in Perry here at the at, at the very uh, just a few months ago, um, I think it ramps up maybe the urgency. Uh, it, it raises the profile of the issue of school security. Um, but I don't, I don't think this bill is directly related to that. There was already discussion um, previously about problems that districts were having to implement the law that had already been passed. And just one more thing I'd mention here is it, in the original form, this bill had a requirement for uh, large districts with at least 8,000 students to have school resource officers in their high schools. There was a change in the version that made it through committee so that a school board could opt out of that requirement. So districts like Des Moines, which ended its SRO program, they would not actually be required under the bill that made it through committee to restart an SRO program or to bring in Uh, some other kind of security officers. We have a lot of issues we still want to get to here on River to River on IPR News. You can add your questions or comments. Email us at River to River at Iowa Public Radio. We're here talking about which bills are still alive this session, which ones have been sorted out after last week's legislative funnel. Still ahead, we want to talk about bills targeting undocumented immigrants, uh, defining man and woman, making some changes to voting and elections. All of that's still to come. This is River to River from IPR News. I'm Grant Gerlach. Back in two minutes.
Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Grant Gerlach sitting in for Ben Kiefer. It's a reporter's roundtable today as we check in on the legislature after last week's funnel deadline. We're going over some of the bills that made it through, and later on we'll talk about some that came up short. IPR state government reporter Katerina Sestarek is here with us this hour. Also, Stephen Gruber-Miller of the Des Moines Register and Kathy Obradovich of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Get a hold of us with your questions or comments. The way to do that today is to email river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Katerina, we were talking about some education bills uh, earlier. We've had some in the last couple of years that target transgender students. There was a ban on transgender girls and girls sports last year, the bathroom bill and a ban on transgender healthcare for minors. This year, we have a proposal that's broader and it's not just aimed at schools or transgender youth. Uh, can you explain what this bill would do that would define man and woman? Yes. So um, the governor, Governor Kim Reynolds, she proposed this bill um, without ever having mentioned, um, at least publicly, that she was interested in a proposal like this. And it would define words like man, woman, male, female in state law based on a person's sex at birth. Um, And it would require transgender Iowans to have their sex at birth listed on their birth certificate included with um, what they have as their new as their current sex and their gender identity. Um, this would also um, have some statements in the bill that include um, things about separate is not inherently unequal. Um, that's a quote from the bill. It includes places like prisons, domestic violence shelters, and locker rooms as places where people can be separated based on their sex at birth. Um, this is something that the governor says is supposed to protect women, and she is not including transgender women in that definition, um, that's supposed to protect um, spaces that she says should only be available to people who were assigned women as a woman at birth. Um, And, you know, there have been hundreds of people coming to the state capitol to, majority of them, to oppose the bill, um, saying that this is just, you know, essentially proposing erasure of LGBTQ Iowans, that it would violate the safety and rights and privacy of LGBTQ and especially transgender Iowans. There were some very loud protests in the hallways outside of the subcommittees uh, for these bills. Um, Stephen, what are you looking for as this legislation moves forward through the processes? Does this look like it's in its final stages? Uh, and are lawmakers on board with the what the governor is trying to do here, what can you tell? Yeah, that's a good question. So the governor introduced this bill in the House. So we've really only seen it go through a committee in the House. We haven't seen how the Senate will react to it yet. So that's still an open question. Um, 
but they've shown a willingness to, to pass other bills related to transgender Iowans in the past, as you discussed. Uh, I will say that House lawmakers have already taken out a piece of the governor's original bill that would have required transgender Iowans to have um, markers on their driver's license that would show their sex at birth as well as their current gender identity. So there have already been some changes to the bill. Uh, the other thing that uh, some opponents have brought up is that there might be issues with uh, for instance, domestic violence shelters were mentioned. Some of those uh, federal law requires them to serve transgender women and, and to, to offer space to them as well. So there might be some conflicts with federal law here uh, if the bill goes forward as it's written. Stephen, let's turn to an election bill advancing in both the House and the Senate uh, that would create new restrictions on absentee voting and make it harder to object to a candidate appearing on the ballot. Do I have a couple of the pieces correct there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's start with the the, the ballot objection portion. Um, there's a lot of talk about this being related to Donald Trump, who has seen challenges to his candidacy under the 14th Amendment in states like Colorado and Maine. What this bill would do is it would say that under Iowa's process for challenging a candidate on the ballot, you can only challenge a presidential candidate for whether the certificate submitted by their political party is legally sufficient. So you couldn't do a challenge for the 14th Amendment or something else for Donald Trump. Um, you might still be able to go to court to do that, but under the existing law, you couldn't couldn't file that challenge with uh, the Secretary of State. Um, the bill would also remove the requirement that essentially candidates for federal office, so Congress and the presidency, have to declare that they're disqualified from holding office if they're convicted of a felony. Uh, a lot of criticism that this one also might be aimed at Trump, who is facing 91 felony charges in four different criminal cases. But the argument here from the Secretary of State's office is that the U.S. Constitution sets the requirements for federal candidates. There's age requirements, residency, and there's citizenship requirements. And states don't really have the power to impose additional you know, requirements on federal candidates. So that's kind of the ballot challenge portion. Okay. Uh, and so absentee voting, uh, absentee voting, how would it affect that? That's right. So the deadlines uh, for mail-in voting would once again change. Uh, this bill would allow county auditors to mail out absentee ballots to voters two days earlier than currently, so 22 days before the election instead of 20. But it would require them to be mailed back and returned to the county auditor the day before election day rather than by the time the polls close under current law. So you would lose a day at the back end for mail-in voting. I have uh, a question that came through email that I want to throw out if anyone is familiar with this one. Uh, this comes from Grant, not me, who asks, what happened with the bill to make school boards and city councils partisan positions? Uh, has anyone followed that, and saw, Stephen? Yeah, based on my uh, understanding that that bill did not make it through the funnel deadline. I think it passed out of a subcommittee, but to my knowledge, it did not pass through a full committee, which means it will not move forward this year. One of those dead ones. Um, Kathy, there's been, there have been a few bills, especially in the House, that uh, GOP lawmakers say would are meant to deter illegal immigration. Um, now, there are several different ones, and so we don't need to go into great detail in each one of them. But could you provide an overview of what they're proposing and how they claim it connects with the issues at the southern border? Yes. So um, there were, I think, originally four bills um, that dealt with immigration, and um, one of which um, would 
essentially criminalize um, re-entry into Iowa by undocumented immigrants. In other words, people who um, left or were deported, for example, and then come back to Iowa, that would allow um, state law enforcement and judges to um, actually enforce um, what up until now has really been the, the realm of federal law um, to, and actually, um, you know, allow judges to order deportation. Uh, state state judges here. These are not. Yeah, state judges, yes, to order deportation. Um, another bill, um, which is still alive also, it would require the use of E-Verify um, for businesses to determine the immigration status of prospective employees. This bill we've seen several times. Um, it's generally, or I mean, over the years, we've seen it several times. Um, it's generally being opposed by business groups that say that um, it, it uh, isn't a great system, that it, you, know, it, you end up with um, false um, uh, determinations that somebody may not be, uh, have legal status to work in the state. Um, and uh, and immigration, immigration advocates and groups are also um, really out against that bill. Um, they also have been uh, protesting a bill that would have um, eliminated in-state tuition uh, for anyone who um, couldn't prove their legal residency status. Um, and, you know, that would include dreamers um, who are here legally, um, potentially, um, but they, you know, potentially wouldn't have um, that proof of of uh, legitimate uh, residency status. Um, and, you know, again, immigrant, immigrant advocates are saying, you know, this is um, this is a workforce bill. This is a workforce issue. Um, don't deprive these uh, businesses uh, of an opportunity to hire willing workers. Um, there was also a bill dealing with um, trying to uh, require uh, public assistance programs in the state to verify um, the legal status. Um, and uh, there was also um, a series of provisions in that bill dealing with how, you know, sort of criminalizing assisting um, people, undocumented people to stay, you know, sort of evade law enforcement or, mm -hmm. or to otherwise stay in the state. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I think that bill um, died in the funnel. So. Those are all alive as far as I'm oh, aware. Oh, they're all alive. Yeah. Okay. Um, they've gotten okay. through. So, yeah. So a okay. lot of immigration bills still alive this session, uh, moving through the chambers. Uh, let's look at um, another bill here, extending coverage for women on Medicaid after giving birth. Katerina, how would it change what is available to women in that situation now? So right now, um, women who are pregnant and qualify for Medicaid um, health insurance, that covers their pregnancy care, their birth, and then postpartum after 60 days after they give birth. Um, this bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds, but something that's come up many times in the legislature from various proponents, um, would extend that to 12 months after birth um, just to deal with lots of potential health challenges that can come up um, during that time for people. Um, but it would also restrict the income eligibility for pregnant women to qualify for Medicaid. Um, so right now, 
Um, it's about 375% of the federal poverty level people can qualify, and this would put that down at 215% of the federal poverty level. So we've just been hearing, um, you know, lots of stakeholders who, you know, work our children's health advocates, women's health advocates, um, very excited about extending postpartum Medicaid. Iowa would be one of the last states to do that. But they're also urging lawmakers to not restrict income eligibility because they don't want, you know, fewer people to qualify for this coverage in the first place. That's fewer pregnant pregnant people, fewer infants who would have that health coverage. So I just want to cover those two parts again. It extends coverage for those who are eligible, but it restricts who's actually eligible right. for coverage. Right. Mm-hmm. Um Let's take a a turn to tax proposals here. Uh, And Katerina, I want to ask you about this as well. The governor wants to cut income taxes again. So do Republican leaders in the House and Senate, but they have different ideas of what should come next. So what's the difference between what the governor is proposing versus what the House and Senate are proposing on taxes? So under current law, um, we're on track to have a 3.9% flat tax at the start of 2026, but Governor Kim Reynolds wanted to do more than that. So she proposed um, dropping that to 3.5% flat tax starting next year, 2025. Um, And so that would kind of speed up and make those tax cuts even deeper. But we have the um, chairs of the House and Senate Ways and Means Committees, which are in charge of tax law. And they have a proposal together that would um, eventually eliminate the state income tax. So it's set into motion this kind of system that would eventually, they would hope, lead to zero income tax in the state. Um, and so, you know, it's not really clear at this point what um, what we'll end up with. Um, but I think that we could definitely expect some more income tax cuts to pass this year. It's just not clear what. Thanks for that update. Um, there, over the last few years, there have been bills around these pipeline proposals for carbon sequestration pipelines that would cross the state. In the past year, a couple of those have gone by the wayside, but there's still the summit uh, project that is looking for approval through the Iowa Utilities Board. And as related to those, opponents of those pipeline projects have been coming to the legislature to um, try to ask lawmakers to step in on the use of eminent domain for these kinds of projects. Um, Stephen, there was an eminent domain bill um, in the House. Uh, Did it make it through and and what would that do? Yeah, the House leadership over the last couple of years has been more willing to entertain proposals on eminent domain than the Senate has. So the bill this year in the House would essentially uh, give Iowans uh, who are, uh, you know, potentially going to be having eminent domain used uh, on their land, they would give them the chance to go to court faster to get a resolution about whether or not that use of eminent domain is proper. It would also give the company seeking to use eminent domain a faster resolution as well, rather than kind of waiting until the end of the process. So this is kind of the bill that the House has on eminent domain this year. When it was first introduced, it also had a component that would allow a fifth of the Iowa House or the fifth of the Iowa Senate to actually pause all eminent domain proceedings Mm -hmm. uh, for a certain project if they wanted to, that piece has been taken out. So that's no longer part of the bill. Uh, It's just that first part about getting a faster court hearing. Uh, Kathy, let's talk about social media and uh, minors online. Uh, GOP lawmakers are interested this session in doing something to protect minors from the potential harms of social media and from accessing pornography online. There were a few di- a few ideas bouncing around. Were you following what made it through the funnel last week? 
Yeah, I think that the the main bill um, that looks like it has uh, some legs on it would uh, require anyone under age 18 to get permission from their parents to create social media accounts. Um, parents and guardians um, could, um, you know, essentially have passwords to view their online, um, their kids' online activity. And uh, the, the Iowa Attorney General would be able to sue, and also the, the parents could sue companies for violating those parental authorization rules. Um, now, there were previous uh, ones, uh, there were also bills dealing with um, trying to get um, age verification um, for uh, sites that ha have pornography. Um, there, there were several other social media bills bouncing around, um, but um, a lot of those had uh, a significant opposition from a coalition of uh, tech companies. Um, and uh, generally speaking, um, and that's happened around the country as well, as other states have tried similar types of legislation, a lot of those bills um, have not been able to advance just because of the really solid um, opposition from the tech companies. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, Kathy, there was one that made it through that requires parents to authorize social media accounts. Then there was another one in the House, Stephen, that has to do with age verification? Yeah, what Kathy was just talking about with uh, sites with pornography on them, there is a bill in the House that made it through the funnel that would require those sites to get the age verification of their, or verify the ages of their users. Um, that bill also has some other requirements about schools teaching students about n p potential negative effects of social media on mental health and, uh, and other things. Uh, so those are two, at least, <laughs> proposals going through. As Kathy mentioned, there were several others that, that didn't make it through the funnel. But those two having to do with age verification and, um, and parental authorization of social media accounts did go through. And those have been sort of copies of various laws that have been introduced in places like Louisiana, Arkansas, Utah, some other states that have had different kinds of proposals go through having to do with social media sites and um, and pornography sites online. We heard from Stephen Gruber-Miller of the Des Moines Register. We have Kathy Obradovich of the Iowa Capital Dispatch with us and Katerina Sestarek of IPR News. Coming up, we want to talk more about some of the bills making it through to the next part of the legisla leg legislative session. And we'll jump through some bills that are looking rather lifeless over la after last week. I'm Grant Gerlock. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Grant Gerlock in for Ben Kiefer. On today's Reporters Roundtable, IPR State Government Reporter Katerina Sestarek, Des Moines Register State House Reporter Stephen Gruber-Miller, and Iowa Capital Dispatch Editor Kathy Obradovich, we're talking through bills that made it through or came up short after last week's funnel deadline in the Iowa legislature. Email us to join the conversation, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. We've covered a lot of ground, but there's still several things left. Um, 
Let's turn to a bill that's still alive in the Senate that would make changes to collective bargaining for public employee unions. And Kathy, uh, unions are not happy about this proposal. What is it in this bill that has unions so upset? Uh, in fact, we were just we we're hearing uh, that they're ta- already talking about um, demonstrations at the Capitol and potentially even uh, rolling strikes of public employees, uh, basically over their um, you know being upset about this bill. Um, essentially, the, their concern is that this legislation would make it uh, very easy for g- local governments to decertify unions. Um, it puts in deadlines, uh, you know, union bargaining units have to give notice um, through the Public Employee Relation Board um, that they have an election coming up and they're required to ask the government agency for a list of eligible employees. If the government uh, neglects to file or to, re, you know, to give this list um, within, I think it's a 10 day period, the essentially the union would just be decertified. Um, so it would make it make union busting very easy, according to the public employee unions. Um, uh, there is um, some exception. And of course, the uh, bargaining unit um, could go to court to you know, you know try to force compliance uh, and get that employee list so they wouldn't have to be decertified. Um, but I mean, the unions are looking at this as part of kind of a pattern of trying to take the teeth out of uh, collective bargaining for public employees. Um, as as you may recall, a number a few years ago, they took uh, all but really salaries off the table um, in terms of what can be part of uh, bargaining units and negotiations. So um, this is kind of, you know, the the unions are seeing this as the next step in just essentially trying to make public employee unions a thing of the past. So, so Kathy, so the unions could take the hit for this list that's out of their control? Yes. Yeah. That's the concern that, you know, the, the, the government agency would be required I mean, the government would be required by law to hand over this list, but it's essentially the union that gets penalized if they fail to do so. Uh, And as you mentioned, some potential demonstrations scheduled for this week around this bill as it looks to potentially move forward in the Senate. Yes. Yeah. Um, There is a bill that's been moving forward that has to do with state agencies and and how they are audited, Stephen. Can you explain to me, <laughs> what are they looking at doing here? And the state auditor, Rob Sand, is upset with this bill because it says it could be uh, potentially an end around around the work his office does. What are they looking at doing with this? Yeah, Senator Mike Busolo has a bill in the Senate that would essentially allow state agencies to uh, contract with a certified public accountant from the private sector to conduct their annual audits, which they're required to do rather than having those audits conducted by the state auditor's office. Um, Senator Buslow has pointed out that local governments uh, often employ uh, CPA firms, private CPA firms, to do their annual audits. Um, but Auditor Rob Sand has said, you know, this is essentially letting them pick the person they want to have, you know, have audit them. And it's an end run around the will of the voters who elected the state auditor to essentially oversee uh, all these state agencies. And 
worth pointing out here, Rob Sand is the only Democrat elected to statewide office in Iowa. And this is the second bill in as many years that would essentially peel back or, or limit the scope of his office's powers. Last year, the Republican majority passed a different law that would prevent him from accessing information or taking state agencies to court. And Sand is really saying that the combination of these bills is neutering the auditor's ability to really go after bad actors. What I remember him saying was it would turn his office into a lapdog, not a watchdog. Maybe I've <laughs> turned around the words. Um, but what, what do senators say they're actually trying to accomplish with this? I think there's a shortage of, of staff. Uh, it, it, they, they say that there's, uh, you know, the auditing field, the CPA field, um, you know, it can be difficult to find enough people to do that work. And they're saying they want to just give state agencies a choice. Um, if they feel like a private firm would do that work better for the, ta- at the, you know, for the taxpayer's dollar than the auditor's office, they could choose to go with that firm. If they feel like the auditor's office would be, do a better job, uh, they, they could uh, continue as they are. Uh, Katerina, last year we had um, a very long bill that merged different state departments. Uh, this year there's a proposal that would merge or eliminate boards and commissions. Um, Give us an update on where this stands and and what would happen under this one. Yeah, so there's 256 boards and state boards and commissions in Iowa. Um, They do things like professional licensing for, you know, doctors and then all the way down to advising on policy matters and approving administrative rules, lots of things these different boards do. Um, And so the governor has proposed cutting more than 40 percent by merging and eliminating a bunch of them. And um, the Senate has advanced most of her plan um, with just slight amendments, Um, but the House took a completely different approach. And so the House is proposing a bill that would only cut 49 boards that they say are obsolete. Um, And so the plan in the House, that's the scaled back version, didn't really get much pushback from the public, um, had bipartisan support on, you know, the, the approach that was taken. In the Senate, when they did the governor's version, there were all these people there saying, you know, this is going to essentially decimate professional licensing for my profession. Um, So that one, that version is much more controversial. And um, there was also a proposal in the governor's original bill, but it's now been separated out and is also advancing that would eliminate the gender balance requirement. Right now, Iowa law requires these boards and commissions to be gender balanced, and um, that would go away with... um, if, if that separate bill continues to advance. Uh, so in a few minutes here, I'd like to go around the group and have you mention a bill that did not make it to, through the funnel that you'd like to highlight. So just want to get you prepared for that when we go to it. Uh, but there's another proposal that the, the governor mentioned um, as part of her condition of the state that would, uh, we were just talking about merging boards and commissions. This would merge the state's mental health and substance abuse regions Katerina, is her plan going ahead the way she envisioned, and what kinds of questions are coming up about how that would work? That plan is advancing, um, and so, yeah, it's another sort of merger plan um, that would take the more than 30 total um, mental health regions and and substance use regions and combine them into seven behavioral health districts. And so um, what state health officials are saying is this would help um, draw down and consolidate free up more funding for these services. Um, not really clear yet. We don't have a lot of details on that. But um, 
basically the the main concern is that you know lawmakers have been working on mental health systems for years now um it was 5 or 6 years ago that they did you know kind of this overarching mental health framework then a children's mental health framework Iowans still very much struggling to access services um and so i guess the hope is that this would you know make that easier make it easier for Iowans to figure out where to go but there's also a lot of mental health advocates who say unless you're really putting new money into the system and looking at different new approaches, you know, how much is that going to help? One of the um, recurring kind of hot topics in the legislature is the use of traffic cameras, uh, cities using traffic cameras to um, automatically catch people who are speeding. Um, and that is back with a little bit of a twist. Um, Stephen, have you been following how that has been advancing? Yeah, this year, uh, it's a time-tested tradition to combine two totally separate bills in the hope of advancing both of them. And that's what's happening this year. Uh, Republicans have combined a ban on traffic enforcement cameras with a ban on uh, using electronic devices like cell phones while you're driving. So both of these ideas are ideas that have been around in, in the legislature for years. They've never had enough support to pass on their own. Uh, they were put together at least temporarily this year and have made it through committee, uh, but it's possible that they may end up being split up again after all. We'll, we'll see, uh, but we'll see how that strategy works to kind of combine them to uh, see how many votes they can get. I'd like to highlight one here uh, because a moment that stands out from this first um, chunk of the legislative session was a subcommittee on a bill that would have required students and teachers to sing the national anthem every day at school. <laughs> I was in an awkward position of being right there for the singing and in the background of a lot of camera shots of that. But I have some video. Yeah, you were not some singing. Got to get no, that good audio, though. No, that bill did not go forward. That one is dead. But there was a lot of discussion around uh, proposing new social studies requirements for schools. And where that all landed in the House was with uh, a bill that would... Um, lay out some very specific documents and topics that schools would have to cover starting in fifth grade. Things like not only the Declaration of Independence, but a couple specific Federalist papers and um, works by Thomas, Thomas Paine and others. And there was a lot of discussion uh, about whether the legislature should be setting specific things that schools need to teach in these social studies standards. It did pass. Um, they would have to learn about the national anthem. They wouldn't have to sing it every day. But there are some some social studies standards moving through. A related bill that also went through um, would take another look at curriculum standards across the state um, with the goal, it says, to make Iowa's standards the best in the nation. And as part of that, it would uh, remove anything having to do with social-emotional learning or critical race theory from state standards for schools. And there was some pushback on that for a couple reasons. CRT, as it's called, doesn't exist in state standards. Um, and social and emotional learning, it appeared that lawmakers really had a different view of, of what that actually means. There were Democrats saying, does this mean schools can't do leader in me? And the House uh, chair Skyler Wheeler was saying, well, that's not what I mean. I mean things that are more related to critical race theory. So there may be more discussion about how exactly they're defining some of those things. But those are a couple that went through the, the committee to stay alive in, in the process here. Okay, let's go through and talk about bills that did not survive 
the funnel. Uh, and Kathy, I'd like to start with you. Is there a bill that you would highlight that didn't make it through the funnel last week? Yeah, I thought that the discussion about public libraries was really interesting. Um, you, you recall that um, last year there were uh, significant um, uh, legislation that would uh, ban certain books from school libraries. Well, now they've moved their attention to public libraries, and um, and one of one of the things they do would essentially give a take power away from elected library boards and give power to city councils to override decisions that the library boards were making. And also, um, essentially, it would, the bill would have made optional um, the funding mechanism for uh, public libraries that city councils could choose uh, essentially to eliminate the funding uh, for public libraries if they wanted to. And, you know, the, the opponents of this legislation um, are saying this is just another effort to try to control what books are on the shelves. Um, uh, the advocates of the bills uh, said no, that, that it is about, uh, you know, giving control uh, over this taxpayer money to city council who, uh, you know, essentially have to control the budgets of, of, um, of all of the institutions uh, in the city. Um, there was a pretty big outcry there, um, you know, including from librarians around the state. And it looks like that bill now is on the shelf. Thanks, Kathy. Um, Stephen, what's a bill that died you want to highlight? Yeah, I will uh, point to a bill that would have removed gender identity protections from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. This is something that there's a segment of Republican lawmakers that have been trying to take out these protections, basically protections from discrimination in housing, public accommodations, elsewhere. They've been trying to take these out of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, that bill received a subcommittee hearing, but all three lawmakers at the subcommittee said, we will not move this forward, which is very unusual. Typically, when they're holding a hearing on something, it's uh, it's a bill you can be relatively sure will advance. So that was kind of striking. And uh, there were a lot of LGBTQ Iowans there protesting. They all cheered when it died. But the very next day is when Governor Kim Reynolds introduced her bill that would define man and woman in state uh -huh. law and put some of these other uh, requirements on um, birth certificates for transgender Iowans. So it may be that uh, it's sort of a different approach to, to look at that issue from Republicans. Hmm. Katerina. Um, there was a package of bills. You know, we don't usually talk about what the Democrats' priorities are, but they had a bunch of bills that would add nursing home inspectors, raise minimum wage for caregivers, things like that to address issues going on in Iowa's nursing homes. Um, none of those bills moved forward. Um, the Republicans also had some ideas for um, improving things in nursing homes, um, but, you know, those are not nearly as um, as far-reaching as the things that the Democrats have proposed um, and I would note that in the Republicans in the Senate also didn't want to have an oversight hearing about nursing homes that Democrats had requested. Mm. So, um, yeah, efforts by Democrats generally fail in the in the Republican led legislature. But that's just another topic that they were talking about. Well, I'll, I'll just throw one out here. There was a school chaplains bill. There were versions in both the House and the Senate, and it would have allowed schools to hire a chaplain or appoint a volunteer chaplain to provide spiritual guidance in schools. And there was something like this that recently passed in Texas. So this was an effort to you know, bring that to Iowa. And supporters argued it could help address the mental health concerns that exist in Iowa schools. 
It got a lot of pushback, though, from professional chaplains because it doesn't require professional credentials of a chaplain who would serve in a school. And in the end, it did not have support to pass. We covered a lot of ground there. I want to thank uh, the members of our roundtable today. Kathy Obradovich is the editor of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Stephen Gruber-Miller is a statehouse and politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. And Katerina Sestarek covers state government for us here at IPR News. We'll have more updates on what's happening at the State House here on IPR News. The session is far from over. Today's show was produced by Samantha McIntosh with technical support from Tony Sarabia. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. For IPR State Government reporter Katerina Sestark, I'm Grant Gerlach. You've been listening to River to River from IPR News. Mm-hmm.